1: This is Babbage, a weekly conversation on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Couquier, senior editor at The Economist, and on this week's show, we head to the depths of the world's oceans and find that they're not as clean as one might think. That's
0: like 50 times the amount that you would find in the most polluted environments on the surface of the earth.
1: The journalist and author Alan Schwartz will delve into the problem of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and its overdiagnosis.
2: Any kid could at certain points qualify for an ADHD diagnosis. Most kids are hyperactive from time to time. And we'll hear what
1: was getting scientists fired up this year at the AAAS meeting in Boston.
3: Everyone is just sort of very worried about what the new administration means for science, science funding, working scientists, all that kind of thing. But first,
1: most scientists have long believed the deep ocean is a clean place where even the most harmful of pollutants made by man are diluted to the level of insignificance. But new evidence suggests this is far from the case. Joining us on the line to explain more is our science correspondent, Matt Kaplan. So first, how far down are we talking?
0: You look at something like the Mariana Trench, which is the the deepest point in the sea, and you could flip Everest upside down, stick it into the trench, and you'd still have a mile of water sitting on top of the base of the mountain. And so the the big question here has been, are these remote locations at the bottom of the sea as pristine as we think they are?
1: Okay, so what sort of life exists down there? I can imagine there's not so much sunlight. So how do animals and organisms survive?
0: you have ecosystems where there is no sunlight whatsoever. At shallower depths, like 5,000 meters, you have ecosystems that run off of chemicals that are oozing out of vents on the sea floor. But in trenches, you don't have that. The entire ecosystem is dependent upon dead organic matter raining down upon them from animals that lived way up in the shallower bits of the ocean. And they do just fine off of it, but when they die, there's nowhere else for it to go. Once compounds make it into the trench, they're really not getting out.
1: So drifting down with this dead organic material that these creatures feed on has been other nastier stuff, isn't that right?
0: Yeah, the idea that these ecologists, led by Dr. Alan Jamieson at uh, Newcastle University, is that some compounds, like really nasty stuff, like polychlorinated biphenyls, which used to be found in dielectric fluid and made their way into a lot of electrical equipment, the suspicion was, well, these things are very resilient and they're very toxic. When they make their way into a marine organism, and that marine organism dies and falls into a trench, what happens to it?
1: And how exactly did they get
0: down there? So they sent a rover, which was remote-controlled. It dropped down into the trench on its own weight. Uh, They looked into the Mariana Trench and the Kermadec Trench. Once they got down into those trenches, they used traps that lured animals living in them, and then the traps closed shut once they had animals inside, and then the rover dumped its ballast and became buoyant and floated to the surface where they collected the animals that had been captured. And then they monitored the tissues that were inside those animals for a a number of pollutants. One of the key ones that they looked at were these polychlorinated biphenyls, and they expected to find them. they did not expect to see them in the amount that they did.
1: So what sort of levels are we talking about? In polluted areas
0: on Earth, you might find levels that were as high as 100 nanograms per gram of sediment that you accumulate. But in the Mariana Trench, they were finding levels that were at 1,900 nanograms per gram of tissue collected from these animals. That's like 50 times the amount that you would find in the most polluted environments on the surface of the Earth.
1: And do we have any idea of what kind of knock-on effects there will be from this? Is it just bad for the animals down there, or can we extrapolate that this might have impacts elsewhere? We know
0: that it's carcinogenic, so it's not doing the animals in the trench any good whatsoever. Whether or not those toxins accumulating down there is going to come back to bite us is a much more difficult question to answer because we just do not understand how much the biology in the trenches affects biology outside of them. To our best guess, once something goes into the trench, it stays there. But whether or not we're going to see this come into a shallower environment and ultimately harm us is is an open
1: question. If any of you have come across ingenious ways to clean up our oceans or have any thoughts on this issue, please join in the conversation by emailing us at radio at Next up, ADHD, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is a condition which causes people to be impulsive, hyperactive, and struggle to pay attention. It is widespread across the world, but could there be a problem with an overdiagnosis of the condition? One person who argues that this is the case is Alan Schwartz, a former New York Times journalist and the author of a recent book entitled ADHD Nation. He joins us on the line now from New York. Alan, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks a lot. Great to be here.
1: First, let me press you. Does ADHD really exist? Is it, is it a real malady or is it something that's just been concocted in the 20th century to sell some drugs?
2: The behaviors exist and the suffering or the cost of those behaviors exist. Now, there's no blood test for ADHD, okay? There's no magic x-ray or brain scan. But then again, there's no magic test for a concussion either, and no one would ever say that that's no big deal. I
1: want to understand, as much as we can understand it, the ground truth of the situation. How prevalent is ADHD?
2: The experts at the American Psychiatric Association have told us how prevalent it is in the official definition of ADHD. They say that the condition affects approximately 5% of children, okay, in most cultures. So, there's your answer. What they have tried to do is calibrate the definition to vaguely fit that prevalence, but the problem is they've done a terrible job of it. The definition and the diagnostic criteria of ADHD are so amorphous and open to interpretation that we've reached the point now where in the United States 15% of children get diagnosed with ADHD. Any kid could, at certain points, qualify for an ADHD diagnosis. Most kids are hyperactive from time to time. Kids who don't sit still in class, I mean, one of the criteria is, you know, gets up from seat or or fidgets or has trouble waiting in line. I mean, come on.
1: Now, in the book, it does a very good job of describing what I'll call the ADHD big pharma complex, in which you have a whole suite of medical practitioners who overdiagnose, and you have a whole lot of uh, drug companies who are more than willing to ship pills in their direction. Why do you think this is taking place? Is it just purely the, a profit motive, or is, is something just more deeply flawed?
2: I would allow for a decent portion of the problem to derive from the fact that doctors want to help people. And frankly, the medication is a very good medication for that it does help it's quite effective in getting most kids to slow down and pay more attention to things that they're supposed to be paying attention to but the problem is is that the doctors yes they do make money from making diagnoses i mean they do and you know return visits and stuff like that there's no denying that and frankly a lot of the researchers who are also practitioners get paid by big pharma to come up with all these wonderful uses for the pills and all these wonderful studies that justify the use of the pills. Every major ADHD drug over the past 20 years has been flagged by the FDA, formally reprimanded for false and misleading advertising. However, I don't think we can expect pharma to behave differently. They have a different set of rules. They have a different set of standards. I think the medical establishment is the one that has really abdicated its responsibility here.
1: So what are the drawbacks to the kids who are taking these medications?
2: You know, the medications are not the devil's work. It's just that people are not paying enough attention to recognize where some of the downsides exist, where there are issues with insomnia, with appetite suppression. There can be issues with anxiety. There can be issues, frankly, with psychosis. You can start seeing and hearing things that aren't there. Now, you can stop taking the meds and things will be okay. But people don't understand that these are serious medications. They are class two controlled substances for a reason. They're among the most addictive substances known to medicine. When you start getting into high school ages and kids have the pressure to perform in school and certainly in college, you have real abuse problems that people seem to want to ignore.
1: So what are the reforms that we could enact that would actually remedy some of these problems?
2: You need to really take a long time to see where do these behaviors come from. It might be from anxiety. You know, they might be hyperactive because of bullying at school, trauma in the home, poor sleep, poor diet. I'm not saying that ADHD doesn't exist. It's just that a lot of the cases that are being labeled as ADHD now must derive from other things, according to the American Psychiatric Association. So we need to just slow down and try to pinpoint the diagnoses more accurately. There just isn't nearly enough sort of moral, let alone medical, oversight for what the responsibility of these practitioners truly is, which is the health of the patient.
1: Alan Schwartz, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure, anytime.
1: In last week's episode, we discussed how advances in reproductive technologies mean that ways to create humans without using the, if you will, traditional methods are multiplying. Cloning people could come even sooner than we think. The idea spawned a lot of wide-ranging conversations across social media channels. On Facebook, Daniel Wesley Clemens wrote, Maybe we should be getting ready to debate the ethics of creating babies with sex, just hoping the fetus isn't deformed. If a world begins to exist wherein we can create healthy, strong kids, is it negligent to just leave it to chance? Ian Salisbury struck a conciliatory note, writing that, I would have hoped by now we can agree to allow people to express their sexual and reproductive instincts as they see fit. What do you think? Don't forget you can all tweet us at Economist Radio or get in touch on our Facebook page. Finally, the annual American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting came to an end this week. Joining me now to report back from the event in Boston is Tim Cross, our science correspondent. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Ken. So, Tim, what was the feeling among the scientists at the event?
3: There was one topic, I think, that sort of dominated almost all of the conversation, and I had a policy... Going over there. You know, being a Brit, I don't think it comes across all that well to land in the US and then start talking about my thoughts on the new president. But everyone I spoke to basically brought it up within the first couple of sentences. And the AAAS meeting, it's it's a science meeting. You know, people go there to show off their research and so on. This year the theme very explicitly was about policy and Normally, the science policy events are deserts. This year, there were, they were sort of standing room only, particularly the early ones. And everyone is just sort of very worried about what the new administration means for science, science funding, working scientists, all that kind of thing.
1: Were there any smoking guns that were raised already in his first one month in office where people could point to a problem that didn't exist before, that now existed because of the change of administration?
3: Well, so this is the thing. It, it, at the moment, it's not actually all that clear what's going to happen. Right, so people are worried, but it's a little bit hard to point to specific things and say this is a sort of terrible harbinger for the future. I mean, there are some. So it seems pretty obvious that NASA's climate funding is going to take at least some kind of a hit. While I was there, there was an announcement of the new head of the Environmental Protection Agency who has a background of having sued that same agency. 14 times. 14 times, exactly. And who has, shall we say, fairly close ties to some of the fossil fuel industries.
1: But certainly the ban on people from certain countries could have a negative effect on science in America.
3: Well, that, I think, along with the new head of the EPA and and the stuff about the climate data, that was the one big sort of concrete thing that's happened that really had people both worried and kind of, you know, offended and and, and up in arms. And America is, is the world's scientific powerhouse. And that means people come from all over the world to study there or to take up professorships there. We've already had cases where people who had been intending to go to some of the really top-tier American universities, either as grad students or as, or as professors, are sort of having second thoughts now. Because if you come from uh, one of these countries on the list, or if you come from a Middle Eastern country in general, or if you're just worried about this sort of official displeasure towards immigration that there seems to be now, it makes the country less attractive. And in the long run, that means you don't get the best people, they're going to go somewhere else. And that directly harms the kind of research you could do.
1: So are you more optimistic or less optimistic about the state of science in the next four years in America?
3: Unsatisfactory as it is, it's almost kind of too early to say. I mean, if you look at some of his appointments, some of the new senior people he's appointed to NASA are actually kind of quite similar to the people you found under Obama. So one of them is a a big fan of private space companies like, like SpaceX and so on, which has been something you know, that Congress has been a bit less keen on, but that's had support from the White House. We don't know who the new NASA administrator is yet, but it seems like that might continue. Lots of scientists don't work in areas that are sort of obviously part of the culture wars. And there's a lot of sort of institutional strength or even institutional inertia that might just keep the funding flowing and keep things going as they were. I think in the next few months, we'll get much more of an idea of, you know, how much we really should worry. There's a big protest planned in Washington in April in defence of science and science funding. I think by the time that happens, we'll have a better idea of how things really stand. But at the moment, I think it's a lot of worry, a lot of anticipation. What substance there is, is quite worrying, but there's not all that much yet.
1: Tim, thank you very much.
3: Thanks, Ken. That's
1: all for this episode. And if you like the show, please take a moment to rate it on your podcast app or on iTunes. If there's a topic or a story you'd like us to cover, please email us at radio at In London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,